Me, 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 but also you. <laughs> the Pharaoh fast forwards his favorite foreign film. Pip, 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 powder donut. <clears throat> okay, what's my line? Uh, the only line I see here on the script is get options based on your budget with the name your price tool from Progressive. Oh man, that's a tongue twister, huh? I'm sorry, I'm gonna need a few more minutes. <clears throat> bulbous Walrus, the Bulbous Walrus. The name your price tool, only from Progressive. The owl ran afoul of the comatose Coxwain. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and affiliates price and coverage match limited by state law. You're listening to The Wobbly Road on Transmission Roundhouse. I'm your host, Tatum Swithenbank. When I became disabled at age 18, I experienced years of limbo before getting a diagnosis, and the road continues to change and challenge. On each episode, I'll be chatting to guests about their off-kilter moments and how they've endured, adapted and flourished. This episode, I chat to a friend of mine, Anik Sony. We talk about his work within Black Pride, his experiences of growing up intersex, and how damaging it can be to be forced into a binary box. We recorded this quite a while ago, and as things are looking very different this year, I called Annick to update us on what's happening with Pride in this new climate, so some of the audio may sound a little different. Content warning, we discuss child surgeries and suicide. I remember growing up, it was my biggest secret. I didn't want people to know. I used to have my brother and sister and like my parents who they all knew because I was the youngest. Um, if I was ever going to the toilet, um, if we were in public, I'd have them guard the door. And that was from when I was like five years old. I was very aware from a very young age that I looked different. My sister and brother used to like, it was normal for them for me to be like that. So. I'm I'm pretty sure at some point they did convince me I was an alien. I often think about if I was the eldest one, would they know? Because I've met some of my friends who are intersex and they're the eldest and their siblings don't know. We should probably talk about what intersex is. So intersex is where you're born with characteristics, sex characteristics that don't fit the typical male or female binary that we're taught. So your sex characteristics are things like your gonads, your internal organs, your external genitalia, your chromosome pattern, your hormones. And in science, we're taught that it's very predetermined. Everything is very simple. And you have boys who are XY and girls who are XX. And that's what we're taught in science. So it turns out that's not how Mother Nature works. And there are different ways of existing. And I happened to you know, be like that. So it was it was a fun experience growing up, in a way, um, because I was constantly surrounded by denial of my existence, my very existence. So whilst I had the chromosomes of a boy, um, externally down there, I looked like a female. And it wasn't until um, years of hormone treatments and um, surgeries that I started to look more like other males. So intersex is an umbrella term yeah. for... Lots of different variations. Yeah, there are so many different kinds of variations that a person can be intersex with. So, And it's important to note that, like, for me, they could tell from birth just by looking at me down there that something was different. But that's not always the case. Sometimes people find out during puberty and sometimes people don't find out at all that they're intersex. It's so broad um, and it affects a lot of people. And at the same time, it doesn't affect that many people because people don't talk about it. So we don't have any true accurate statistics 
Right, because the statistic is that it's 1.7% of the population. And that's what the UN says as well. That's what the UN has kind of fallen back on, saying they conservatively estimate that it's 1.7% of the population. But it becomes really complicated because when you have something that's an umbrella term, each different variation within intersex has its own kind of way of being common or not common. So it has its own statistics within it. And then it becomes a definitions game as well, because the medical community might not view your particular condition, as they would call it, as an intersex trait. Whereas socially and through your lived experience, it might be considered one according to the definition that um, a lot of intersex activists use. So when you're born and you've got, they, they say, ambiguous genitalia, mm-hmm. is that something that, you know, you have to have surgery and those doctors make that decision that they have to operate or do they operate for social reasons? Well, there are some situations where it might be important to do something, but you don't need to do irreversible cosmetic procedures, which is usually what happens. So one of the things that really gets to me is I grew up saying that I have ambiguous genitalia, which is the weirdest thing to say, right? I didn't know it was a bad thing to say that. That was just the narrative that I had. Like whenever a doctor would come to me and say, So what brings you here today to the hospital or whatever it is because I was in pain? I would say I was born with ambiguous genitalia because I didn't know the word intersex. It's not something that my doctors ever said to me. They would always prefer to refer to my specific conditions as they were called. So my traits, they would refer to it as I had severe hypospadiasis. And I was like, what does that mean? What was the medical explanation for that that term? Hypospadias occurs in... um, people who usually have XY chromosomes and it's when there is a hole or a little slit alongside the penis or the scrotum where the um, pee will come out from. Um, So instead of peeing from the tip, um, which is what is expected, you pee from somewhere else. And the reason doctors um, will perform surgery um, so young is because they say if they do the surgery earlier, it causes less trauma because it can be traumatic to do the surgery later on. And it can lead to many infections if they leave it untreated because the um, tip of the, like, where you're peeing from would be too close to um, your backside. Like, when you think about that, it's like, it's not any more common than an average female who has cis genitalia having that kind of problem. So, but when I was younger, I didn't question any of it. And I kind of didn't know what any of these terms meant. To me, my body was normal. I just knew it wasn't like everyone else's. And I remember in the process of making the intersex diaries, I spoke to my mum about this stuff and we didn't always talk about it. We would dance around the subject because we don't know what to talk about. We don't know what to say. And I said, well, how much did you actually know about this condition? And she told me this story, which really, really made me upset. And it really made me feel like, I was so hard on her and my dad. So what happened was she didn't know how to say hyperspadius. She called it hyperpadius by mistake. And she went up to a nurse and said, so my child is having surgery for hyperpadius. What is it? And the nurse just laughed at her and said, oh, it's nothing for you to worry about. It's fine. And for the next five years, my mum was didn't take me to doctor's appointments. It was my dad instead because my mum felt really embarrassed by it. I never thought about how traumatic it was for my parents. Like, we talk about the wobbly road. Imagine what it's like having a child, never learning about this kind of stuff, and then suddenly being faced with these decisions, should we do this surgery or not? It was always a matter of disguising 
identity with medical terms. It's been heavily medicalized. And you get some situations where it may be important for a parent or a doctor to perform surgeries to make a body look different. And those surgeries used to be called normalizing surgeries. Normalizing. Wow. So my first surgeries happened when I was four months old. And my parents weren't really given much information. And they were kind of just told, your child needs to have this surgery. And um, this surgery will help your child to grow um, and live a healthy life. I think it was framed as that your child has a deformity or something wrong with their body. And essentially, when you have a child and a doctor says to you, we need to do surgery, it's a very shocking thing. And it's something that parents aren't given enough information about, but generally we aren't given enough information as the public. Can we talk a bit about your surgery? So mm-hmm. when was, you said it was... Four months when they started. And um, so those surgeries were um, primarily, my parents were told it was to fix hyperspadius. It was, they were told I would need like one surgery. And I had multiple before I turned five because things kept going wrong. Um, and that's kind of been like the story of my life. Whenever I've had surgery, it's never gone to plan. And the reason it's not gone to plan, if you think about it, is because they don't actually need to do these surgeries a lot of the time. They haven't practiced them. It's a lot of the time some doctors just really want to do them. um, And they want to be like part of like some kind of medical history or some kind of, oh, this is cool. This is exciting. I want to do the surgery. And hyperspadius is actually a very common thing. It happens in one in every 250 to 300 boys. It's just the severity of it, which causes differences so for example if you're born with xy chromosomes and you have androgen insensitivity syndrome like i do sometimes it can be mild sometimes it can be partial and sometimes it can be complete if you get to a point where um, you look female according to some standards and you get to puberty and you don't menstruate um, that sometimes can be an indication that there is something different about you and Um, I've known people who have had their gonads removed and then they have to spend their life on hormone replacement therapy, which shouldn't have have to happen. Like, all of these surgeries aren't always necessary. Some of my friends weren't even told that was what was happening to them whilst they were having these surgeries. It's very emotive. And when I was learning about all of this stuff, I didn't grow up knowing about it. I'm constantly learning. And I think that's really important too, because... Just because I am intersex doesn't mean I know everything. Like, there is still a lot for me to learn. So how many surgeries have you actually had overall? I don't know full figures. I can tell you in the past two to three years, I've had 13 major ones. Wow. Um, And have you had your last surgery or is this going to be a repeated thing? Apparently, I need surgery for the rest of my life to maintain this. I was told there was three surgeries and that's it. My life will be fine. I'm going to be perfect now. I'm going to be a normal boy. You can have an amazing, fulfilling life if you didn't have these surgeries. If I was taught to love my body instead, it would have been so much easier for me. Um, And I wouldn't have needed a lot of these surgeries, which are emotionally, financially and just physically taxing. They are just really... I couldn't have a job. I couldn't go to school properly because I was constantly dealing with all this stuff that I kept private. What were you saying to your peers when you had to go and miss school? Oh, the amount of times I have had my appendix out. Wow. funny because I actually have my appendix, but, you know, (laughs) like, there was always different things. The amount of times I had grandparents that died, there was always some kind of excuse. But essentially, um, 
there's an intersex activist called Pigeon Pagonis and they are incredible. And one thing that they taught me whilst making the intersex diaries was why do we strive to perfect these surgeries on children whose bodies are still growing instead of trying to perfect them on adults who decide to have these surgeries? Because not everyone will decide to have them. It's waiting till the age when they can make those decisions for themselves. Yeah, and that will depend on the person. And if they had told me that actually you'll need surgeries every five to seven years just to change the device um, that they've put inside me or just to like maintain it, I would have, I maybe would have reconsidered. I don't know because I wasn't given that option. Surgery was something I'm, I've always been adamant that I've chosen to have, but I didn't understand the history of the intersex movement. I didn't understand that actually I was very much socialized to want surgery and really I should have been made to love my own body how it was and if I still wanted surgery that's completely fine but it's my choice because the intersex movement as a whole isn't anti-surgery it's not don't yeah, do surgery it's pro-choice choice. yeah exactly people when I tell them all this stuff happened to me and it happens under the NHS they're like what what do you mean there's irreversible cosmetic surgeries happening on children's genitals under the NHS so it seems that it's not just about for intersex people, it's not just about creating awareness, but actually it's about your rights. It's a human rights issue, yeah. When I was 15 and they were first discussing phalloplasty to me, they were saying that usually it happens for people who have had some kind of trauma to their penis, or if it's a female to male um, trans person, they will have the surgery. Um, and they said you can cover the scar with tattoos, and they showed me pictures of white bodies covered in tattoos. Now, if I show you, you've seen my scar multiple times because we are friends, but... Um, it's a really, really amazing It's very scar. prominent, and I'm proud of it now. Good. But it's one of those things that people would come up to me and ask me, oh, what's wrong with your arm? Or that's a really bad tattoo. Or they'd say all of these things to me because these surgeries that I was shown pictures of weren't on bodies like mine. They weren't even on intersex people, for one. But they were on people that just didn't have the same skin tone as me. So I have two different colours on my arm and it looks, you can tell that something's different. Can you talk us through why the skin was taken from your arm? So the skin that was taken from my arm was to basically create um, a penis. And I start off the intersex diaries but with a joke. Do you know how some people wear their heart on, the sleeve, on their sleeve? I kind of wear my penis on mine. People, at first, they don't know whether to laugh because they're like, I don't know what to do in this situation. It's really awkward. And that's what I want people to realise is fine. You can, mm. whilst you don't know anything about it, it's fine to have all of these different emotions. Like, one of the things about having visible scarring is that I don't need to talk about it and I should be able to just exist without people asking me questions. But at the same time, because I'm an activist and I want to spread awareness about this and kind of usualise the experience, get people to realise that, do you know what? We all have different bodies, different experiences. Um, if you want to talk about it, that's fine. I just I want to be in a space where um, someone can look at my scar and if I want to talk about it, then I'll talk about it. But they won't come up and ask me. I remember being in a supermarket once and someone came up to me and said, dude, what happened to your arm? Do you get in like a fight or get burnt or something? It's like you don't just ask people that because you don't know the depth of what's happened and you know it's so personal it's been really traumatic yeah and exactly. it was but i yeah, talk exactly. about it not everyone wants to talk about it you shouldn't go up to an intersex person and ask them for all of this information yeah it shouldn't be expected yeah, yeah there are sure. some of us out there who talk about it in various different formats go and find us don't and even even then be be cautious about yeah. asking. you don't want to be a token of education
did you feel that it had an impact on when you were socializing in school when you were making mm. friends yeah, well it's a good question because people often um said i think or act like a girl i was always like what do you mean what does thinking like a girl even mean like what is that like everyone thinks the same they all think differently why does it have to be one or the other yeah like, it's like society's gendering everything yeah growing up i felt like i was a boy because other people were telling me i was a boy but i didn't feel like a girl so i felt very agender growing up i felt like i didn't have a gender but at the same time it was offensive to me if someone said i wasn't a real boy or if i was if someone said oh i'm like a girl so i still grew up feeling kind of like pressure to conform and fit in um my lowest point in my life was probably when i was 14 and i'd actually content warning hit them going to talk about suicide but i actually ended up um swallowing 52 random pills that i found in my house and ended up in hospital and at the time, my parents and siblings didn't know it was anything to do with intersex or anything like that. Didn't know it was because I was ashamed of my body or anything. I was a very emotional child anyway. Like, we still have all of the normal teen stuff going on. It's not like you only have one problem in your life. One of the hardest things was when I woke up in hospital, I overheard one of the nurses say she was talking to another nurse. And she said, well, to be fair, if I had body like that, I probably would have done something like that too. I would have killed myself too. And I was um, 14 at the time. And so when I went to therapy um, to talk about mental health, to talk about all of that stuff, I didn't talk about the intersex side of stuff. I was like, no, that, that was valid. I shouldn't have been happy with my body. I was off Facebook for a while for the simple reason that when I was dealing with my mental health, I felt like I was portraying a lie online. I was posting all these happy images of me smiling all the time. Um, no one knew I was intersex, all that stuff. And then I was offline for a long time. And then there was a group called Interact Youth, which is based in the States. And it's an international community of intersex superstars, essentially. That's what it is. It's something that I had never had growing up. But when I found out it existed, I was like, I need to know other intersex people around the world, um, especially people who are closer to my age. But I didn't have social media at that point. I was like, what do I do? Do I go on social media? Do I do this? And I ended up getting social media so that I could connect with other people. And I love what you're doing about curating your own content and making sure that the space that you access online, your feed, is what you want to see. But for a lot of people they just follow like people who have unrealistic body expectations or yeah. goals that are achieved through different ways there's so many things that we can't control but we can curate our feed and we can choose who we follow so follow people with different stories from you and people that you're going to learn from and don't follow people who are going to make you have toxic ideas about yourself or unrealistic beauty standards I really wonder what it would have been like if variations of sex characteristics, which is another term for intersex, if intersex was taught in schools, what would my life have been like? Would I have been able to vocalise being intersex at that age? Would I have come out in school? Um, or would I have still kept it private and people would have been making jokes about how, oh, I'm glad I don't have one like that. Yeah. It's hard enough growing up as a teenager. I can imagine that everything was so, yeah, more difficult. At 14, everyone in school basically had their first partners and stuff. Everyone assumed 
that I was gay. They didn't really understand why I wasn't as masculine as everyone else or why I'd always have an excuse to miss PE or why I didn't like changing in front of other people. They always had all these different ideas of what my identity was. And I just want to make it very clear from this point that just because you're intersex doesn't mean you are a member of the LGBT community. It doesn't mean that you it's nothing to do with your sexuality. Like there are intersex people who are straight. Is the I in LGBTQIA because as an intersex community, you are underrepresented and a minority group rather than it being about your sexual orientation? Well, I like to think so. There are people who disagree and don't think that um, intersex should be included. But for me, we have a lot of shared history of um, people trying to tell us that something is wrong with us, of being medicalised, of existing in a space where we are told we shouldn't exist or that we just don't exist in the first place. Um, and conversion therapy is a real thing across LGBT spaces throughout history and in some places in the world, and it's been criminalised and all these things. But intersex surgeries are still very much legal and happening in a lot of places, and intersex surgeries for me are conversions. They are trying to make a body, quote-unquote, normal. And there are parents out there raising perfectly healthy intersex children without forcing them into having surgeries. They've had to fight because legal systems, um, like even in the UK, so my degree was in law and I spent a lot of time focusing on children's rights. It's what I'm going to be studying further. If a parent disagrees with a particular course of treatment, if the doctor's acting on behalf of the state think it's medically necessary, there are still ways for it to be done without the child or the parent wanting it. Like, how weird is that? And they would say things like, oh, you're too young to understand the gravity of this decision. It's like, no, I'm too young for you to be coming at me with a scalpel. When it comes to dating, I know our experiences are very different, but I found it really hard in the past knowing when to tell them about my disability for various reasons. Have you ever felt challenged when dating because you have to do things a bit differently, especially with a sexual partner? It's such a weird thing. Um, No one talks about their penis as much as I do. And the difference was now I talk about it openly outside of my family. And I remember when I first told my parents that I'm going to start telling people, they were really freaked out. And they were like, what are people going to see? What are people going to think? You're not going to be able to find someone. And I was like, those things were all true even beforehand, even before I was going to plan on coming out because I had this really deep anxiety that if I didn't tell someone and I got into a relationship with them and I wanted to wait until we were in a solid place, maybe marriage or something, until I was physical with them, like, what would she think? Um, Like, I felt, as a feminist, I felt like, what am I going to do? Am I going to, like, trap someone in a relationship and um they're not going to be sexually pleased with me or anything like that and I'm just constantly dealing with all of this different stuff and um which is a weird thing for an 11 year old to think about you know yeah so in terms of relationships I was always busying myself with volunteering or other things so that people thought oh no just busy and most people assumed oh because he's Indian um he can't be gay so because he can't be gay he's like This is the actual thing people used to think. They were like, oh, um, yeah, so he's just ashamed of his sexuality. That's why he's not dating anyone. He's not dating girls or guys. I mean, he should, my, like, I've got a friend who said to me multiple times when when they were drunk, oh, you should just come out. It'll be so much easier. And I was like... So people just making assumptions about you all the time. Yeah, and, you know, sexuality is different. 
and I do have a fluid sexuality, but I also don't experience attraction in the same way. I'm still figuring all that stuff out. And a lot of that is because of trauma I've had. It's because of surgeries that I've had. And not all intersex people have that. Just because I was so ashamed of my body doesn't mean that other people were. It is perfectly normal and acceptable and possible for you to grow up loving your body and being intersex. Has meeting other intersex people really widened your view and helped you see more positives? I used to think that all intersex people are sad and all intersex people have the same experience as me. They don't have relationships and they're so worried about everything and they're constantly dealing with so much. Turns out that's not true. People are happy. People are in loving relationships. People are out there doing whatever, whoever, whenever they want and they are just happy and the hardest thing growing up for me was this idea that I would never be happy, I would never be fulfilled, and I would just essentially not be enough because I wasn't male enough, according to doctors and society. I wasn't female enough. Um, I was just somewhere caught in the middle. And even when I got in, in, into intersex spaces in the first place, because of the definition games, sometimes I felt like I wasn't intersex enough. And I've had people who aren't intersex tell me, oh, but you're not really intersex, are you? Because really your chromosomes are XY, so that must mean you're male. And they're like, you can't really deny science, can you? I'm like, when was the last time you had a lesson? In the 1960s or something. And by the way, I've read the medical journals of that time, and they knew even then that intersex was a real thing, that sex is on a spectrum. So... I find it hilarious when people fall back on these ideas like, oh, no, but in science it's this. And they don't even actually, they're not scientists or anything. And science changes. Science isn't something that is the truth. It's constantly changing. What is it that you do to take care of your mental health? The biggest thing I do is volunteering. Get out of bed because when I'm in my low moods, I can stay in bed for days. Um, so I volunteer at the Roundhouse. I also um, volunteer for Great Ormond Street Hospital on their radio station. They have a radio station at this oh, hospital great. for children um, who are in the wards. So for me growing up in hospital a lot of the time, it was very boring and isolating. So I wanted to go and do something like that. So I now volunteer at Great Ormond Street. You'd think those things would be really draining, but actually they really energise you. Yeah, and it's so nice to have a routine where you meet people who have similar goals or similar um, interests to you because um, I don't want to have the kind of situation where whenever I meet friends, we're just going out for a drink. I want to be able to have friends who have similar interests to me, who have similar views, or we're working together on something creative. It's so much more fulfilling for me and for anyone who's never volunteered before, just look up things you're interested in and find out what's going on in your local area. You don't have to do something that is taxing. Like with the work with the mix, I volunteered on their helpline until it got to a point where I didn't feel comfortable doing it because I was dealing with a lot of um, traumatic experiences. But it's not something that you have to um, sign up to and then that's it forever. It's Find something that suits you and go for it. And one of the things that I was lucky and fortunate enough to do was become trained as a mental health first aider for young people. And through that process, what I learned was the best thing you can do is ask a person how they feel and what they want. Sometimes it's the hardest thing to achieve. Um, you can't give someone what they want all the time. 
but so it's asking that question asking how are you and actually waiting for a response and i think as well like we don't always have to fix people just listen to someone and, yeah. and maybe be like you know what i don't have a solution for this but i'm here and i'm gonna sit by your side there's nothing better it's than empathy. that i am a huge overthinker so if i'm sharing my problem with you trust me i've thought about it a lot in many different ways like i don't need your input necessarily i just want to tell you about how i'm feeling you walked Pride in 2018, was it? Was that the first time the you first walked time as, as an intersex group. community? Yeah. It was the first time in London that intersex people had come together and marched in Pride. It was incredible. There was um, opportunities for me to meet people I'd never met before. We were all people of different ages, different sexualities, different life experiences, different ethnicities, different races, everyone just coming together, all for one cause, which was raising awareness about intersex. So I'm part of the core team for UK Black Pride and part of my role is to focus on communities. So everyone sees the LGBT community as one homogenous blob and we actually all have very distinct identities. So what my role is, is to encourage people to talk about the different realities that exist within those spaces. So it's the L, the G, the B, the T, the Q, the I, the A, the N, B, and there are so many more identities that all belong in this one acronym, which sometimes doesn't do it a justice. But my role is to get people to realize that we're not all the same. Even though we had shared experiences, sometimes we have different lived experiences too, and that's important for us to all become allies to each other. And I think it's such a unique experience to go to your first Black Pride. I remember when I first went to it, it was two years ago before I joined the team. And the following year, Lady Phil, who's the um, founder of UK Black Pride, one of the co-founders, found me and said, I know nothing about intersex people. Come and teach me and join my team. And two years later, I'm still doing it because we've built a family of people who all have such unique stories and experiences. And all year round now, what we're going to do is plan events for everyone. UK Black Pride this year has teamed up with Amnesty and Gendered Intelligence, Stonewall and Parapride. And we've got something called Pride Inside. And it's an online series of gigs, comedy shows, panel discussions and arts-based events. And it's going to be happening from Sunday 28th June to Sunday 5th July. So it's continuing the celebration after Global Pride, which is on Saturday the 27th. The difference of having it online for me has been particularly positive because what I've found is that usually when it comes to Pride, it's such a big deal going to your first Pride in person. But what about the people who can't actually go out of their homes or live in countries where they can't go out and celebrate Pride? And so for me, I think this will hopefully start a trend for people who organise Pride events to not only realise that they can do this virtually, but encourage more people to do things throughout the year. What I really want to highlight this Pride season is the fight is not over. Intersex people are operated on in pretty much every country in the world. We don't have clear statistics on how many people each year deal with different surgeries that are, you know, sometimes called masculinizing surgeries, sometimes called feminizing. Some They used to be called normalizing surgeries. If you had to bottle a feeling that you could open an experience anytime, yeah. what would it be? So I want resilience because when you are going through a difficult time, I don't want to replace that with happiness. I want bottled resilience, which is like the power to deal with what you're dealing with. Anyone who's gone through anything big knows that you have to deal with it. You have to go through it. You can't just push it to the side and forget about it because it will catch up with you. It's like 
um, carrying something around with you. You have to know what you're carrying instead of just adding to it all the time. And resilience is a way to deal with that. So that that's the feeling I want to bottle. I'm sure you've had a lot of resilience from the journey that you've been on your entire life. It has been a very wobbly road. This time five years ago, if you told me I would end up working for a really big media organisation and working for universities and getting like studying different degrees and mm. um and if you ever told me I was ever going to tell people I was intersex I wouldn't have believed you thank you for joining the wobbly road I'm your host and producer Tatum Swithenbank a huge thanks to my co-producer Bridie Addison Child we are powered by Transmission Roundhouse music by James Christie catch you next time I like wearing headphones. I have one ear in, one ear out. Mm. Towards the end of like my work with Radio 1, I used to just walk in and say, I look and stare so deep in your eyes. I touch, and I touch you more and more every time. When you leave, I'm begging you not to go. Call your name two or three times in a row. It's such a funny thing for me to try to explain how I'm feeling when my pride is the one to blame. Wow. But I still don't understand how your still love going. can do. I love saying songs. I'm slightly, I don't know how I feel, but I'm into it. It's very intense. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to Transmission Roundhouse. To show you how easy it is to file a claim with Geico, we hired fitness celebrity Billy Blanks. Okay, everybody, our car just got a broken windshield. How about we blow off some steam? Now punch, now kick. Uh, Mr. Blanks, there's no need to be stressed. Geico makes it easy to file a claim online, on the app, or over the phone. Yeah, but what if I never hear back? That's going to make me want to go jab and jab. Uh, nope. Your Geico claims team is always there for you. Okay, do I still get my post-workout protein shake? Sure, Billy. Geico, great service without all the drama. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.